This Magic the Gathering podcast and many more can be heard online at manadeprived.com slash podcasts. Leave a comment and tell us what you think. What's up? I'm Michael J. Flores, and I'm joined by... Roman Fusco. And this is episode one of the Ancestral Recall podcast. So. So, Michael J., what are we going to do on this podcast? Well, Roman, the Ancestral Recall podcast is it's going to be a bunch of stories, right? But mm-hmm. in a way, it's the story of you. The story it's, of me? It's the story of young Roman Fusco. A lad that I met at a local standard tournament like two or three years ago. Roman is a young and up-and-coming player in the in the New York City area. And if you can't tell by the quality of the sound of this podcast as contrasted with some other podcasts that I might be on, he actually is a sound engineering student at NYU. Yep. Interested in sound design, studying film in general, but this is what I like to do. So we are actually... In a real sound studio with, like... We have a real mic in front of us. And, like, (laughs) padded walls and, like, you know, in case I wanted to go crazy and hurl myself against the wall, there would be padding there to keep me from injuring myself. (laughs) Padded door. But anyway, so Roman is a sound engineering student or film student, whatever kind. Some kind of student interested in hearing things, but also interested in Magic the Gathering. So he's an up-and-coming player. And, you know, sometimes after F&M, we'll go grab a dinner at... Hill Country Barbecue or Outback Steakhouse, and it was revealed to me once. Never read any of the good magic articles, like from any, back in the day. Any of your articles? Well, like is, that any, you, is that what you're asking? Well, any good magic articles, really, <laughs> like mine or anyone else's, right? Sure. So, I mean, you can talk about your perspective. Just like a lot of these articles that are coming out that you had read or you'd largely been exposed to are just clickbait articles or yeah. a deck list. They're not as much wall of text as they were, let's say, 10 years ago. So we're at Outback, I think, and in between chomping this steak where I said, just never let me order this crap again, mm-hmm. I sent Roman a link to the article that we're going to talk about today, which is how to win a PTQ. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, you can say how you felt about it. it no, I think it, it changed my life. It changed Roman's life. <laughs> okay, maybe not that much, but it, it's a really good I actually article. think it changed your life, All right, and I'll sure. tell you why. If you recognize Roman's name, it's because maybe a week or two ago, at the point that this podcast comes up, you might have heard of him or seen him on camera. Maybe we'll put in the show notes um, links to twitch.tv of him winning Star City Regionals. Yeah. So he won that with Inspiring Vantage Burn Deck. Uh, that that we worked on, and the reason this was this was so prescient for us was he said, oh, "I'm channeling my inner how to win a PTQ." Yeah, uh, to me well, I, was, I was like currently four zero or something, and then he um, just went seven zero and two in the Swiss, and then three zero in, in, in the finals. Yeah, and never lost um, except maybe to himself. And, that happened one game. <laughs> Let's not talk about that. Just there, but we had actually been talking about doing this podcast for a while. So yeah. I'm actually really excited. What our plan is is to kind of revisit one of the old canonical articles from 10-plus years ago, maybe even 20 years ago, 
and that my job will be to kind of curate and pick the articles and read them. And maybe you've never heard some of these articles or read some of these articles. And then Roman's job, and we'll do this together, is kind of discuss the points of the article mm-hmm. and decide if they're still relevant, right? So yeah. So what these, can we learn from 10 years ago that applies to Torment Magic in 2017? And m- maybe you'll like them, right? So yeah. people don't really read anymore, but maybe they're really into listening to magic podcasts. Yeah, hopefully. So I'm, I'm going to go back to my canon and uh, just read old stuff, and maybe you'll like it. Yeah. And, All right, let's do it. So we're going to do an article called Flores Friday, How to Win a PTQ, and it's from November the 9th, 2007. So that's like... Ten years old now. Yeah, ten, ten years ago. This is when uh, you used to write for Star City Games. Yeah, I was a, a premium writer on Star I think that was during my first tenure as a premium writer on Star City Games. It was actually my second tenure at Star City Games. So I mm-hmm. wrote there in like 1999. I didn't write there again until like maybe 2003. I wrote there from like 2003 to I think 2007 or 2008. Came back in 2011, I want to say. Uh, I was a, I am, I think, the most um, decorated in terms of like writer of the year and article of the year at Star City Games. But this one, which I actually think is one of my better articles, was only runner up for article of the year. Who beat you? Richard Feldman defeated me for an article called One Game. Maybe we'll, we'll read that one later on. We certainly will not. <laughs> so let's let's see this one. How to win a PT game? All right, let's let's uh, jump in. Interrupt. As appropriate. Will do. Otherwise, it's going to be a wall of text coming out of Michael J's mouth. Satan and I actually went over my entire tournament playing career for fun. Actually, it was more of an argument slash dressing down. One night when we went to Plataforma, I decided that I went about one in nine PTQs that I play in. I don't know if that's a good ratio or not. Possibly it is good because I've won a fair number of PTQs but probably it's embarrassing because I think I've played in a total of three PTs where I didn't have to win a PTQ to be invited. Anyway, I recently read slash reread a quote from Tim Ayton about winning PTQs. So I decided to take a stroll down memory lane to see how any of my PTQs stacked up in terms of why I won. Tim's quote, originally from a Kyle Sanchez article. Number one, it's just your day. You're an at least reasonable player, and you just happen to bring your A-game that day. Little bit of luck, etc. Two. You just outpower the field by so much between your play skill and deck choice that it'd be hard for you to lose. The problem with Tim's position, from my perspective anyway, is that nothing about it is actionable. What is the takeaway? You win when you're destined to win? The second element is closer to something that you can actually put into practice. But honestly, I can't imagine anyone winning a PTQ on play skill. Not truly. Really? Only on play skill? And I certainly never have. At the time that I wrote this, I would have said no. Actually, ensuing, I'm aware, I think, I think Tom Ross won one. I think I would put him on play skill. Mm-hmm. Tom won a PTQ, a standard PTQ with a Naya mid-range deck, I want to say circa 2012, where he had lost every die roll. So I believe he lost 12 die rolls, um, which is extraordinarily unlikely mathematically. 
Uh, but I believe he lost all 12 die rolls, and he won the PTQ. I would put that very, very close to um, must have won on place. Sure. Uh, but typically, I think that it's it's largely deck choice for constructed and a way more luck than people are are willing to seed. I don't think as individual game of magic is necessarily you know weighed in terms of luck versus skill, but winning a PTQ, which I would envision being a tournament that you would win somewhere between nine and twelve matches, mm-hmm. is way more luck than not way more luck than skill necessarily, but way more luck than than people will admit for the most part. Anyway. Despite winning more PTQs than pretty much anyone that Kyle interviewed. On second thought, maybe not everyone. And 20? Definitely not Tiago. So Tiago Chan, the Snapcaster Mage Head, at this point that I had written this in 2007, won 20 PTQs, Mm -hmm. which is quite a few. For me, the most useful quotes were from two players I greatly admire. The cleverly maverick Billy Moreno and the incomparable Gadiel Slifer. Billy. You just got to feel like you're the best player in the room. Gadiel. By proving mental, physical, and moral superiority in comparison with other top mages in your area. So even though you're, you may not be the best player in the room, right, on skill level, you just have to have that like iron belief that you're going to win the event. I do think that what I would call frame, which is your your picture of reality. So mm-hmm. all of us... All of us live in some version of reality and also carry with us a local reality, right? So, um, and these two things often cross over, right? They don't typically cross over 100%, right? But they, they often cross over in, in negotiations. And I think that there's some extrapolatable look that you can have in a magic match that a magic match is a negotiation between two people mm-hmm. in negotiations typically the person with the greater grasp of reality or the greater ability uh, to it's say force but like say like you have a reality and I have a reality our realities are in some way competing with each other the mm-hmm. one who the one who can uh, more Force or I, I hate to use force, but you know that their reality wins is likely to be the winner in negotiation. So, to answer your question, if you carry uh, if you carry with you this iron will, right, that you're winning constantly, you will be difficult to defeat. Also, keep in mind if you're not winning, it is difficult for you to to carry like this thing, like oh, I've, I'm going to win this tournament, right? If you mm. have two losses you're not in the physical reality more that you can win that tournament so that that's going to be a gap but so long as you can win the tournament if you carry this you'll be at a great advantage i think relative to to not having it mm-hmm. does that make sense yeah that's just what i think to continue scott mccord taught me some similar i was at an international house of pancakes in i think orlando florida in about 2001 Paul Jordan had tricked me into flying to U.S. Nationals despite not being qualified. In a limited grinder, the only grinder I was able to play in due to doing too well and giving my standard deck to Matt Rubin, who played just long enough to keep me out of the last grinder, 
I got a great sealed deck with Hunting Drake, Flame Tongue Kavu, Urborg Volcano, and Salt Marsh. You'll note, I was also the correct colors. I probably would have qualified without losing a game. Except, one round. Thomas Pinnell didn't use the loudspeaker to announce the next round. Oh no. I was actually 40 minutes into jawing with Randy Bueller and Jeff Donay, quote, between rounds, when I finally asked Jeff what was taking so long with the next round. Oops! <laughs> Six or eight people got booted that round thanks to no loudspeaker. Ironically, I had been standing next to Thomas and his boss the entire time. Awkward. So anyway, I was in IHOP with Scott McCord despondent over not qualifying. I cannot stress how easy qualifying would have been. Playing that deck against whatever pretender was across the table felt like something you would go to hell, or at least jail for. Like eating delicious food that is going to give you a heart attack. The mana was so good. I hate lost opportunities more than anything. See the summer of 2000 below. I had about four games to go until invite time. Have you ever played with Flame Tongue Kavu in Constructed? Playing with it in Limited is kind of like that, except you kill a 4 4 for 5 instead of a 2 2 for 2. Hunting Drake is even worse, believe it or not. I've beaten FTK with white cards more than once, but I think over an entire year of playing Invasion Block, I only ever beat a resolved Hunting Drake in one solitary game. So you had this really sick seal deck in the limited grinder. But... I had both in-color dual lands and the best card that existed in the limited <laughs> format. My deck was blue, black, red, so I also had a ton of card drawing so I could siphon through my deck and find mm-hmm. my key cards. Yeah, so he just didn't use the loudspeaker. I, 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 I was through, it was a single elimination tournament. Yeah. I was through like six rounds without losing a game at this point. Like, my mono's perfect. Like, two different in-color dual lands. So anyway. So anyway, I was all crying in my cereal. Scott always has something to say. A lot of my magic worldview, for good or ill, was sculpted by Scott, who was an absurdly tight player and completely no-nonsense. If a bit myopic about certain things regarding deck selection that he saw as empirical that I didn't or don't, I told Scott that I was done, that I was probably never going to play in another Pro Tour. Blah, 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 blah. Scott told me that he enters every single tournament with the unshakable belief that he's actually going to win it. It's almost a moral value for him. There is no other reason to play in a tournament. I adopted that attitude and now really and truly agree with this, which is why I am sometimes perceived to be arrogant about magic. Really? <laughs> so, I guess that's, you know, a really good mindset to have, though. So, I'll, listeners, I'll clue you into a conversation Roman and I had just earlier today, actually. Actually, not even about this, but we were talking about, um, we were talking about apps or something, right? Mm. And I said that I had a bet with somebody about 
whether I could carry a southern drawl, like a really bad southern drawl, oh, all day, right? So sure. I had a bet with this U.S. girl at work. And so of all these people want to get in on this bet, right? Mm-hmm. And there was some question over whether I should be allowed to not use the really horrible southern accent while in meetings, especially <laughs> – like meetings with like the CEO or board yeah. or something. And I'm like, I'm all in. I would just do this Southern accent. <laughs> but the girl actually had this great comment. She's like, oh, no. I want Michael to not be able, not have to use the Southern drawl in the meetings so that when he goes into the meeting, he can go back to regular Michael. When he comes out of the meeting, then he has to go back to the Southern drawl because it creates switching costs, right? So... If I come out of the meeting and then I'm just talking regularly like this, I might forget to switch back into the Southern drawl, mm. so I'll lose the bet, right? So mm. um, kind of what I was trying to get at when we were talking before is that if you're going to take a certain mental position, you kind of have to live it all the time or you're, you're, you're going to disconnect. You're going to disconnect sure. your mind space from – the reality you want to live in, right? And when I say like the reality you want to live in, all of us live in a somehow imaginary reality, right? None of us are rational all the time. The advantage that you can have is to control, to understand the space that you're living in, Mm -hmm. control your emotions within that space, and hopefully have as good of an overlap between that space and the reality that you actually live in. Um, and that will hopefully help to produce the best results for you in whatever endeavor you're trying to do, whether it's playing magic tournaments or doing better in sure. school or doing better at work, you know. Yeah, and aside from me, um, when I started playing PPTQs back two years ago when I first moved to New York. Just as a side note, before you finish this story, yeah, Roman played uh, our our burn deck to win the the Star City Regionals two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. But it's two weeks ago now, is that right? Yeah. About two weeks ago. But he had won his first PPTQ last summer with the same 75, more or less, that I had used to qualify. Yeah. So, you know, kudos to that. First I was just like, oh, I like this kid, blah, blah, blah. But you actually turn out like you're being pretty decent at tournaments now. Um, And I'm... I'm, Maybe just modern tournaments. (laughs) (laughs) Well, after after reading this, all tournaments. Yeah. But anyway, um, I interrupted your PPTQ story. So what I was saying was, you know, back two years ago when I first started playing PPTQs, it was like the first time I got to play in competitive magic events. There wasn't Mm -hmm. a store back home. I didn't get to go to big events often. Um, So when I first started playing and making top eight, I was really excited, right? I made top eight of a PPTQ of 20 people. I felt so good about myself. And then I lose to my friends in, you know, top eight, top four, and I just kind of shrug it off. You know, I, I really wanted to win. Hold that thought. What? Next paragraph. Hold that thought. All right. The best of my experience, oh. you have had to approach the game with the mentality that it is your divine right to win the tournament. If it is your goal to win the tournament. Mm-hmm. I've written before about mercy. Mercy is due to the serious tournament player. You think Aegon the Conqueror wrested control of the Seven Kingdoms by being a merciful liege? The guy, Conqueror rather, and his two bitch sisters had massive air superiority and a simple outlook. Bend the knee or my dragon roasts you and the horse you rode in on. (laughs) 
What about Michael Jordan? He could be up 20 points in the fourth, and that tongue-wagging bastard would still put up a fadeaway three, because Mize. Merciless. Absolutely. Unbeatable technology. What about John Finkel? Does anyone else remember the quote, you could at least make it look close? I was pumping my fist and jumping out of my seat in the first row, and even I felt bad for Benefell, whom all the odds makers had winning the tournament, as he fell 0-3 in the money match, 0-2, 0-5 in both meetings. So what's that a reference to? U.S. Nationals 2000. In the finals, John was playing Napster, mono black deck mm-hmm. uh, that I had designed. And Benefell was playing a mono red deck, and... He had the card Hammer of Bogardon in his deck, mm-hmm. which killed basically every threat in John's deck. And so all like the pundits who were writing articles, you know, people are doing coverage or writing about things while the event's going on on other websites. And they're like, John can't possibly beat Benefell in the finals. Blah, blah, blah. John actually beat Benefell repeatedly in the Swiss <laughs> uh, and without losing a game. And then he crushed him 3-0 in the finals. One of the greatest, uh, first of all, in my mind, Brian Hacker and Randy Bueller were a great tandem, in particular because of Hacker. Uh, I I was Randy Bueller's broadcast partner for a while too, and mm-hmm. all of a sudden I would just try to channel Hacker. He was so good. I just remember there was this moment in that match where John cycles the card Rapid Decay. Do you know this card? No. It's a B one for an instant. You can remove three cards from a graveyard from. Uh, from the graveyard to exile them but the, the we didn't have the word exile yet back then but he, it also had cycling too so mm-hmm. he cycles it and Randy's like why is he cycling that rapid decay and it was obvious that he had had Yawgmoth's will and he like nailed Benefil for all of his hammers like and drew an extra card like it was like wow. it, magic was way less swingy back then it was way more it, the, the cards were less obviously powerful mm-hmm. right so you, you had powerful effects, but you typically had to set some of these orchestrations up over the course of multiple turns or at least multiple stacks. And it was, it was an unbelievable moment on camera. If you want to go back and watch the, the finals of U.S. Nationals 2000, they probably have it on the, the Mothership Archive. Mm-hmm. But yes, that is what that's a reference to. Here, I interrupted you. This part is important. Hear that, listeners? This part is important. <laughs> It isn't just about your mindset. It's about any goals you have in life. And perhaps most importantly, it should be a cornerstone of how you pick your decks for the rest of your days as a tournament magician after reading this article. Actually, it's really interesting that I say that it's about everything, your goals, but most importantly, how you pick your decks. (laughs) Kind of tells you where my mind is at. Yeah, I think both are equally important now. We all fall short. That's a problem. It is, however, also universal. Unless you are perfect, you can't dodge this one. You are living in a real world bound by physical laws, energy, and entropy. No matter how smart you think you are, at the end of the day, you are shuffling cards. And Fortuna might have it in for you. You make mistakes. Sometimes you do anything and everything right, and it's still not your day. You fall short. But there are still things you can do to put yourself in the best possible position, even armed with this knowledge. What is the takeaway? Go back to your top-aiding idea. Sure. So 
playing in those events, I would top eight and like lose to friends in top eight or top four, and I would always walk away. Well, I really wanted to win, but hey, I top eight anyway. Good right? enough, right? Yeah, and I kind of kept that mindset for a while. It's not which good is enough. Really bad. Um, and I really did want to win, but I think um, the problem was I kept going into tournaments not with the mindset that I am here to win the tournament today. I am the the one destined winner. If you think about playing in a PPTQ, for example, yeah, think about the process of playing in a PPTQ. First of all, for me, it's probably a bigger leap than you, right? I have, um, I work all week, right? I work in another state. Like, I know the New York City, but I work in another state, so I'm gone all day. I don't get to spend that much time with my kids during the week. So typically, I spend more time with my kids over the weekend. So my wife takes care of the kids for the most part, and then I, like, I don't know, have Nerf Wars or take them to the museum or whatever. For me, playing in a tournament on the weekend, I have to invest time that I would other spend, otherwise spend with my family. And then also I have to, like, use wife points because, like, wife points are a commodity. Uh, there's lots of guys who are laughing listening to this now. They, they know about wife points. So wife points are a commodity that are are rare and valuable, right? Mm-hmm. So I have to spend wife points in order to play in a tournament. But beyond that, even for anybody playing in the tournament who's not using wife points, who doesn't necessarily um, spend, spend that time in a structured way otherwise, you go into a store, you've invested $1,000 in a deck or something, and you're laying down 40 bucks to play, right? That's a series of statements, right? Like, you don't... Put $40 down so that people can have takesies backsies, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that's what I think, right? That's a non-insignificant investment in my mind. Anyway. Trick question. There are actually two takeaways. One conveniently pithy principle and one corollary. Number one, if you really want to win the PTQ, or substitute whatever life-changing event you want here. You can't be satisfied falling short. Number two, because you are inevitably going to fall short, you have to aim as far past the target, arming yourself as mightily as you can, because you are invariably going to fall short. If you aim for, say, top eight, don't be surprised if you finish top 32. If you aim for a deck that is, quote, 55% against the field, whatever that means, don't be surprised if you drop it three and two. You know, one match better than 50%. Man, did you kill those statistics. That is why I try to shatter the metagame with each and every card decision. I fall short most of the time, just like everybody else. But on those golden occasions that I'm on or right, the blue envelopes fall like pennies from heaven. So just a note, this was in 2007. Patrick Shapin read this article and said, I've been doing it wrong all these years. I've been aiming for top eight. I'm one of the best players in the world. I make about a top eight. Right? He went on to finals the world championships after reading this article. Like the next week. Mm-hmm. It's just like, man. So it changed his life too? It changed, well, he didn't win <laughs> finals. It was but... his first of two world championship finals. But he's like, I, I completely rewrote how I'm thinking, right? He's like, he, it was, he was already one of the best players in the world. He make, basically made a top eight every year he played on the Pro Tour. He took a few years off in the middle. But, um, but then after that, right, he carried this mindset forward and eventually won a Pro Tour, Pro Tour Journey into Knicks, and he's a Hall of Famer and all kinds of stuff now, which he was not at this point. At this point, he wasn't even a gravy train pro. 
Mm-hmm. So, okay, let's move to specifics. Number one, you really have to believe that you're going to win the tournament and act like you're going to win the tournament. I'm sure that you've seen people fall into PTQ wins who, based on your belief system, clearly didn't deserve them. These people had no frame, they had shoddy decks, their opponents were mana screwed. They probably never won another PTQ. Let's be honest. That, or like Pierre Canali, they transformed from lucky kid to strategically sound grown-up slash heartthrob by putting in the work and pulling a 180. Magic is a game of luck. It's a game of skill and strategy too, but it's at least 10% luck, and even more than that at the amateur level, which is what makes it interesting. If magic were 100% skill, we would call it chess, and nobody would want to watch it on Sunday broadcasts. There would be no aesthetic elements like Taste the Magic. There would be no Flores Friday. Because I don't have very many things to say about chess. Some strategists with their, you have to be faster, or I guess you have to get lucky, quips actually make my eyes bleed, as they make you so much worse at this game. As if those are acceptable answers. How about, that deck sucks, and I am not going to play against it after round three instead. Thanks. Here's the thing about taking a stand. You're actively wrong sometimes. On balance, you can be passively wrong almost all the time. Point being, don't emulate the people who are falling into their wins or have no plan for common problems. Why? Even when they are successful, you can't replicate their wins. Nothing matters that you can't copy, learn from, adapt, etc., or at least measure. If some guy with a bad deck won a PTQ because opponents had a rash of mana difficulty, great for that person. But there is nothing that you can learn from him except perhaps you are more likely to win at the amateur level when your opponents fail to play a third land. (laughs) I've watched John Sonny and Rob Doherty win PTQs. I've watched John Finkel claim a blue envelope. I've won several of them myself, and you can look up the original reports for fresher perspectives if you hadn't read most of them. The takeaway is that there are definitely things that you can learn from, model, adapt, etc., that make it more likely for you to win besides a perceived alignment of the stars. I promise you that Scott telling me that quote, that there was no reason whatsoever to show up to play if I wasn't going to win, If I didn't have that belief burning in the center of my soul, improved my chances a hundredfold. I won the damn PTQ the next day. The next day? The next day. I won two or three PTQs that year, limited and constructed both. So after you were crying in your cereal at IHOP. (laughs) This is 2001, right? This is 16 years ago that this story is taking place. I fly to U.S. Nationals. Uh, to not, I mean, to try to grind in, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, I put myself into a great position to grind in. I referenced Matt Rubin in that section. He had my standard deck. He actually went on to top eight U.S. Nationals. Um, so good good for him, right? But I'm playing limited because he has my standard deck, right? Mm-hmm. 
I'm gonna should you know by all function of the stars or whatever I should um, you know win the event win the event instead I he just doesn't use the loudspeaker to announce the the which isn't that's an insane reason right like just like yeah, six or whatever he just doesn't do it so I'm super sad right I flew down to this tournament you know to not qualify and then um. I won the pizza queue the next day, which is interesting. At that point, um, that Pro Tour was Pro Tour New York 2001. It's actually, I'm probably still my best Pro Tour finish. I finished 17. I won that pizza queue and then 17th at Pro Tour. So, but after you adopted that mindset? Yeah. He told me, like, just win every tournament you enter. And I was just like, really? (laughs) Like, people think that's a crazy thing to think, right? They're like, I can't win every no you can't probably not we all fall short but you can carry yourself in a way mm-hmm. that puts you into a more likely mindset to win right like none of us perceive all of reality right none of us nobody has a monopoly on and everything that's going on we can just con- for most we just control ourselves and our own mindset and I could tell you it's, it's I think it's like the old army quote if you think you can do it or you think you can't, you're probably right. You know? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Anyway. All right, going on. Number two, I hate to pick on Ghost Dad. I really do. It's so trite. I know. I kind of started it, and it is incredibly hackneyed. But it is also the best example because people actually claimed that Ghost Dad was the best deck in a format at some point. I think Ghost Dad was probably about six-tenths of the way to being the best deck in the format. Can you win? Sure. Your opponents can be mana screwed. You can be positioned for your good matchup. You had those for sure. Your opponent's decks can be so last month. Yada, yada, yada. There is a reason that by the end of the format, there were literally no Ghost Dad teams waving around blue envelopes. And there were 100% heartbeat teams winning. The heartbeat players would fall short, but sliding down all the way to 8 out of 10, if they were absolutely horrendous, they probably still had the best percentage to win. Their card quality was just filthy. Tribelders and tops and remands. It was all just disgusting. They outcountered Wafo Tapa and raced the fastest zoo players. Fall short with a 6 out of 10 deck, and you win significantly less than half the time. Best hope your teammates are heartbeat and bore, or that you drew the heezy street, and he gives you an opening. Another thing that I picked up from Scott is the empirical belief that there is one best deck, and that it is, in fact, provable, given sufficient trial, that there is a best deck, and that you should strive to play such a deck and only that deck. Johnny believes this is an absolute fundamental and would even go so far as to say that it is the minimum threshold for competency that you play the best deck. All of us fall short. It might even be rare that we play the best deck. But a problem that many PTQ-level players have, and probably the biggest barrier to their success, is that they willfully fall short at the beginning by not even trying to play the best deck that they 
Instead of figuring out the best deck to play for the tournament on that day, they go for the 6 out of 10 deck, or a deck that they like instead. This is fine, except if your goal is to win the PTQ. How can they be surprised that falling short, they fall short? You can do everything right and not win a PTQ. That is for certain. But there are also a certain number of factors that you can control. If you really want to win, you owe it to yourself to control as many of those things as you can. Fortuna, the decision slash deck technology slash play skill of your opponents. The momentary disappearance of loudspeakers. Too long smoking breaks. The lingering emotional bruising of a breakup. Wasting time in the hotel lobby looking at girls in prom dresses one ballroom over and adverse weather conditions are all conspiring to steal your likely less than 1% raw share of winning the next PTQ. Why do you have to assist this nefarious cabal of spite and chance with your sub-best deck decision? Get this into your head. Mike Turian has never played a perfect game of magic. You personally will invariably fall short of perfection Probably in every game of every round you play, you are going to give up percentage by accident. There is no reason to give up percentage on purpose. Do you know who Mike Turian is? He's an ex-member of R&D, ex-member of Team CMU and Team CMU Target. He's a member of the Pro Tour Hall of Fame. He's at least a... He's certainly a Pro Tour champion. He might be a two-time Pro Tour champion. And... The youngins like you might not know who he is, but coming up, he was considered both the greatest beatdown player of all time and mm-hmm. the greatest limited player of all time. Like, that's two different things that he was the best at in the history of Magic. Um, and Mike once told me, we were rooming together, that he had never played a perfect game of Magic. And I was like, even the Mana Screw games, like the games that like go three turns and you slaughter them, he's like, no, I always did something wrong. And I was like, really? I was like, yeah, it's like, I bent my head wrong, right? I gave away a tell, you know, you know, all kinds of stuff that, that you wouldn't think in equate as, like, you probably don't even register these things as mistakes, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, most of the, most of the, say, like, first half decade of Hall of Famers all, all share a mentality of coming up as physical card players, Versus, I think, like, moto card players, which I think folks who are up now, are, they're, they're different. Anyway. All in all, these long paragraphs explain my personal crushing sorrow at losing at magic. Common as it may be, and consistent advocacy of ideas and stern positions. People only remember that you are wrong when you are wrong. If you're worth listening to, precisely because you're right so often. I'm not talking about myself necessarily. I'm talking in general. Being precisely wrong isn't a lot different from being wrong by default. Except that you might put yourself in the position of being right rather than letting the four winds blow you to your target once in a lifetime. Okay, let me blow the dust off some old... Okay. Here we go. I won my third PTQ, and another won seven PTQs later the same year. I used to play a lot of PTQs. I probably could have won my first two, but I didn't have very good frame. In the first 
ever PTQ, I was doing things like letting people get away with playing five Sarah Angels without calling the judge, then watching them eliminate my teammates a few rounds later. In the second PTQ, I refused to try to play out of my mistakes, as if making a mistake meant I no longer deserved to exist in this tournament, in this universe. Do you have any idea how frequently and how badly your opponents err? They're actually horrendous most of the time, but you are so troubled that you didn't side in Pyroblast and lost Eastern Shade to Control Magic, or you didn't side in Anarchy and lost a Circle Protection Black. You were so egotistically fixated on yourself, on being perfect, on this frankly bullshit idea that there's some kind of justice or order in the universe, and that the best things happen for the most deserving people that you slump so low in your chair, in your virtual mind space of a chair at the same time, that you can't wrap it around your head, that this donkey with his enchantments has no business winning this damn tournament either. Step up, Alice! Why did you just concede game three? This is a kind of funny, this paragraph. Um, in the top eight of regionals, it was a really long day. I was, I was sick that tournament, right? I, I was like, I, I was not feeling well. Uh, you must have been feeling on fire. I do not believe you. <laughs> no, physically, I felt terrible. <laughs> um, did your opponents feel worse considering their hair was all singed? <laughs> um, but I was really excited to get a feature match in round... Eight, where both of me and the other seven, uh, we we drew into top eight, so I couldn't go in the feature match. Yeah. Um, so we got called for the semifinals. Meet the same opponent for in uh, round eight. He was playing uh, Abzan Company, right? Yeah. Uh, and in game one, my first game ever, you know, I was so excited to be on camera. Side note: Roman texts me, "Go look at coverage," and then I start watching. Now, oh, now tell the story. Um, I basically just threw away a game where I played two idol on the Great Rebel. Um, I had my opponent. Dead. So, right. I, I'll explain. Yeah, yeah sure. Explain. Right, so I watched this. I watched the, this match like two or three times to make sure I ca- caught everything. Yeah. Game one, Roman is in a commanding position and has drawn two copies of Eidolon of the Great Rebel, which are in play. He has a Boros charm that's about to go leap. Right. So his opponent has a gigantic token from Voice of Resurgence attacks Roman. Right. Roman, for some reason, takes it. It's like a 14-14 or something, right? It's yeah. enormous. It, right? it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't that big, but it it's was... It's like seven. It's huge, right? Yeah, it was huge. Okay. So, like, I'm looking at this play, and I'm like, the correct play is clearly chump block yeah. with one of the Eidolons, right? So he, yeah. if he chump blocks one of the Eidolons, he doesn't take seven or whatever, and then should hurl the Boros charm at his opponent. And then I don't take so much damage so off yeah, my, take two, my spells. And then, and then just take one Eidolon trigger, untap and kill him probably, right? Well, I, I had a Rift Bolt on Suspend. Okay, so he's dead, right? Yeah. So even if you live through this, the Eidolon triggers on your Rift Bolt will kill you, right? Yeah. It was clearly the right play, right? But instead he just takes it, casts the Boros Charm, and dies. And then I looked <laughs> I, I looked at my, uh, my life pad and I was yeah. like... Oh my god, what did like, I just do? That's like double the it's like double the damage, right? And yeah. then also <laughs> it, it was also re- taking this enormous elemental hit, right? I was yeah, like it was I'm like, my God. So as soon as I like I didn't block I took the damage, I looked I mean, at myself. Also and, at this point I'm like monkey tilt because I can see that you have Arid Mesa in your graveyard. I was just like we'll talk about that another time, but I was not accepting seeing the Arid Mesa. Anyway. Um, anyway, but you know, it's my first game on camera. Like, I was just so embarrassed, and I was like shaking my visibly he's shaking like, my he's head. He's dead, right? Like, yeah, he's he was literally dead. Literally dead. Um, but you know, 
during like when I was shuffling up for game two, I just kind of like took a breather yeah. and I said to myself, "I'm winning this tournament. I, I'm, I have to win the next two games." Which I'm is going amazing, to. right? So your opponent actually had you dead on board. If he uses Gavany Township, untaps and uses Gavany Township on his own turn, you're dead. I think right? he might have been playing around. This is game two, and yeah. he might have been playing around something in my hand. But he, he if I didn't have anything, he, I'm just dead. He he just didn't Gavany Township untap. And then I, he was at two life. And yeah. I think he could. Cord maybe he had I don't know open I I top decked the um, sudden shock sudden shock and then killed him with sudden shock and then and then game three one of the, either game two or game three Mulligan to five on the play it was Mulligan to five game two on the play which is insane like he had such a chance and then game three he made a colossal error right so he taps down to one untapped land but has a wall of roots in play right yeah so. He makes the correct play, which is at the end of at the end of his own turn. He taps the land. To re- there were two creatures in graveyard. He had one in his graveyard, and then you had a goblin guide in your yeah. graveyard, right? So he taps his untapped land to remove your goblin guide from the game. Yeah, and then response, I cast skull skullcrack, right? So he correctly puts a counter on his wall of roots, but then removes the other creature. Uh, gains two life from yeah. that, right? So. What the net net is both creatures are removed from game. He only gets the life triggers for one of them. Yeah. Right? And then he ends up and then going you, you to nine when I untap, untap him, and kill him. Kill him. Yeah. But the correct play here is he should remove the, the add the counter to Wall of Reach to remove the same creature, which will preempt your skull crack. He can gain the life, and then immediately on, on your turn he should use the the wall of roots again to remove the other creature, right? Yeah. Rather than what he did, because there was no fuel left. You you had like exact seas, right? So exactly lethal. So you go to kill him with exactly nine. If he just responds to any of those with the wall of roots, you lose the game. On his, he kills you on the table, right? Mm. But it was insane. He gave you both games. It's uh, I don't know. So anyway, just going back to this point, um, even though everyone makes mistakes, right? Yeah, but yeah. A lot of the times just you do. Don't give up. You didn't give up. No. That's what's admirable. All right. Uh, um, I, I mean, I was very emotional in writing that paragraph. Like, <laughs> I my second PTQ I ever played in, I was undefeated going into I think would have been drawing into my first top eight, and I was playing a black red deck. It's like really well positioned. I undefeated at that point. I was playing against like a blue white deck, which is like my best matchup. I mm-hmm. won game one, and then I had like all these cyber cards. Like I had like anarchy and circle of protection. I'm sorry, uh, I had anarchy and pyroblast and i was like oh well i don't know how many of these things to bring in and it depends really depends on what his strategy is which one is right you know and i also had pillage and shatter for destroying artifacts and like he just got me so bad like he control magic to my east and shade east and shade is a five five creature with protection from white so it can't be killed by swords to plowshares and like i was like oh man i'm just gonna cast like dark ritual east and shade and beat him which is what i did in game one he control mm-hmm. magics me I was like, oh, shoot, I don't have... I didn't think he was going to have control magic, so I didn't have Pyroblast in, right? Mm-hmm. And then, like, he, he, I was, like, so despondent that I had sideboarded wrong. I just, like, I was like, I just don't deserve to play in this tournament anymore. And I, like, conceded. <laughs> so, I don't know if you ever, like, felt, like, super sad about it. I mean, there I are tons of times I probably, you know, threw away games and felt really bad and <laughs> just wanted to concede and walk away. But at those times, you really have to, you know stay strong and kind of take a, a mental like take a, a few seconds just to I really admire that you didn't give I've, I mean I've never been in a position where my opponent would give me two games that I didn't earn 
Yeah. <laughs> like one, sure, but two that I didn't earn is 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 crazy. And then the other case, like I, I was playing a blue white millstone deck once, and I milled this guy for five Sarah Angels, mm-hmm. and I was like, oh, I'm I'm too nice. I won't call the judge. Whatever what I was thinking, right? This is like my first PTQ ever. And the dude eliminated my teammate like two rounds later. I was like, what am I thinking? Mm-hmm. No mercy. If there's one thing you take away from this, it's no mercy. All right. Anyway, I went to a very interesting high school. My graduating class, in particular, was academically one of the finest classes ever to graduate from any school. We led the nation in national merit finalists, had test scores off the charts, blah, blah, blah. My high school was also a football powerhouse like this country has never seen. The two years before I attended, I was in 7th and 8th grade, we were national champions. So my freshman year, we were number one in the nation. Undefeated in the regular season, all of it crushing defeat in the first round of the playoffs that snapped our whole collective mindset like a rubber band. By my junior and senior year, we were undefeated national champions again. But the really interesting year was my sophomore year. We snuck into the playoffs with a two-small, two-loss regular line. And a funny thing happened. It rained. It was muddy. We got an upset or two. We made some good defensive stops along the way. And suddenly, we were in the state finals. Nobody saw it coming, not the media, not the two small players, not even the coaching staff. And then the old man had a startling realization. Nobody is stepping up. With our loss in the first round the previous year, our two lost Swiss, there was no dominant team. The rest of the world was not prepared for victory. So he ran a John Finkel offense with the game plan designed by Kai Buddha. With our backs against the wall, he sided in and drove at purebred. His center was throwing 80-yard passes via reroute, rewind, misdirection. Somebody is going to win this damn thing. If nobody is stepping up, put yourself into the best position to be that somebody. We were dominating national champions the next two years, but that one, that was the one where we snuck into state all the sweeter. The first PTQ I quote won, end quote, I actually took second, losing to Eric Lauer's mono-black anti-snow necropotence. I was black-red snow and lost every exchange in the most embarrassing possible way, from ice quake damage to snow-covered landwalk to not being able to regenerate, really. Luckily, I had the foresight to play necropotence, and none of my opponents until Eric could match this decision. I therefore had a massive technological advantage, and it held up. Funny how mana acceleration and broken card drawing will do that. Until faced by a better mousetrap, which Eric likely had. As for play skill, I will always remember my match against Bruce Cowley on red-white. One game, I locked his ivory gargoyles with dystopia, plus a little land destruction. Just awesome. In the game that locked top 8, I necroed down to 1, looking for an incinerate to end the game. Let me tell you, back on... October the 12th, 1996. People did not know to do that. Go back and watch the money pros from the era at the tournament center on magicofthegathering.com. They were actively awful at Necro. Me, I Adrian Sullivan the face with my black red. Bam, bang, incinerate you, pandemonium. The next PTQ win, seven tournaments and two formats later with a top eight and five X and twos in between. I had the foresight to get a sealed deck with both Caravex Torch and Volcanic Geyser. And to draft a first pick Caravex Torch in the top eight. 
I won all four top eight games with the said torch before splitting with David Bachman. I'm going to go ahead and say that limited PTQs are not very skill-intensive when compared with constructed PTQs. I'm just going to skip those. Another interesting win was in April of 1999. This time, I was armed with Suicide King, Brian Schneider-style monoblack beatdown with Flesh Reaper, which is possibly the highest-earning PTQ deck of all time among decks played in more than one tournament. It was only ever played in four tournaments. Becker got top eight and punted. Altran lost to a bad consult. Both Francis Keyes and I won on the last week. Pretty awesome, huh? Interestingly, with this awesome deck, I got all horrendous matchups all day and didn't face a high tide until round 10 of the top four. My only such opponent of the day. In fact, I had my back up against the wall playing Sly both round one and round two, playing Sarcomancy, Carnifage, and Flesh Reaver. Those are all creatures that deal damage to you. <laughs> Flesh Reaver is a 4-4 four, four for three, maybe a 4-4 four, four for two, mm-hmm. but it, so it does four. It's either three, two or three. But it also does four to you when you hit someone. <laughs> and as I played against mono red beatdown decks in both round one and round two, I defeated them both. <laughs> I got soft secret force pairings twice, but got three matches entirely on superior frame. I had no chance to beat Wall of Blossoms and tricked Theron Martin into drawing with me in round seven, despite the fact that neither of us was anywhere near a lock for top eight with two rounds to go. I, in fact, Needed judge assistance in both my top eight and top four matches with Pox. I ended up three and one against Pox on the day, but I'm pretty sure it was an unwinnable matchup, and then I won those matches only on Jedi mind tricks and gigantic cracks in my opponent's mental games. I pulled the old, tell me when I have priority, Matt placed trick in the top four against High Tide, look it up, before finally facing down storied magic superstar Matt Vianu in the finals. I didn't actually know who Matt was at the time, but he threatened me in the bathroom with, unlike your last three opponents, I know the rules. Ooh, intimidating. Yeah, he, he, in the bathroom. I know the rules. Can't get me that way. You have to understand, I literally won half my matches on tricking my opponents into drawing, shuffling their graveyards into their libraries. Okay, he did that himself. But I was happy taking the game with two Verdant Forces and two Life Forces facing down my um, lone wasteland, receiving game wins on Urza's bauble underdrawing, it was late, and convincing them into not killing me when I had no cards in hand with literally the evil eye. And, let's be honest, my deliciously charismatic tempo of speech. This would never work in Japanese. Matt, a PT Top 8 competitor, was certainly justified. So, of course... It was pretty ironic when he had to burn for four playing Nevenrall's disc at four in the morning as I tapped my Spear of Resistance. Not so, so what happened there exactly? I know the story, but... I know the reason I didn't do that last turn. So, um, Navianu... So I'm, I played a deck with Sphere of Resistance. Mm-hmm. Sphere of Resistance is an artifact. costs two. Everything costs more? Its text is everything costs one more. Every kind of card costs one more. It's, like, very good against the card High Tide. So... The card high tide is all your islands produce one additional blue. So if you make everything cost more, basically one sphere resistance kind of neutralizes the high tide. Mm. Not really, but it neutralizes it enough that you'll kill them because black deck's really fast. I don't know if it's fast compared to a modern beatdown deck. Not modern like the tournaments you're good at, like the modern era, right? Mm-hmm. But at the time, you know, I'm playing a 4-4 creature that deals four to me because I think I can race people, right? So 
I think I, I think my opening turn was something like Swamp Dark Ritual, Two Two Guy, Sphere of Resistance, or something, right? And then I'm like play Curse Scroll and Him to Torok and Speed in the Wasteland, whatever. So he's got four lands in play, and he doesn't do anything on his fourth turn. Untaps, yes. Plays Nevenrol's disc, taps four man. Kills in. everything, right? Yeah, Nevenrol's disc is an artifact that costs four. Comes into play tapped, but then if you use it, it destroys all permanents. So he taps four and then slams disc down. Yeah, well, he he would need to remove the sphere of resistance because it's gonna mess him up. You know? But so I just like tap the sphere of resistance, and he's like, I knew there was a reason I didn't do that last turn. <laughs> So he just, it's funny because he was like, I know the rules. And You're then, not going to get me. And then mana burn for he four. He mana burn for four. I mean, I would have beaten him anyway, right? Like, I have, like, a massive advantage on the board. He can't cast any of his spells and, like, just destroying him, right? But, like, it's really funny that he would take, you know, basically mm-hmm. a fire blast on, on after telling me that he, he knew the rules. Anyway, I never have... Oh, let's see. I could never have won... Uh, with one, if I had even an ounce of mercy in my soul. Say what you will, but it was only the iron in my blood and the pure belief that winning this PTQ that I had driven three hours to attend the night before Easter allowed me to pull this particular rabbit out of the bag. I had one of the best PTQ decks in history in front of me, but managed to have bad matchups all day. I got unlucky with Demonic Consultation, decking myself against a green deck. I probably fell asleep at the wheel at some point, but I refused to not win. I wish I could still summon this ability, something that I've been able to channel in flashes, making exactly the precisely correct moves with my back against the wall. I don't know how else to explain it, but to say this. You want to win a PTQ? You had damn best believe that the PTQ is yours before you start playing. Listen to Scott, Billy, and Gadiel. Winning is your divine right. The tournament itself is a formality. Here's the thing about mercy. You have to let your opponents kill themselves. I won in large part because my opponents refused to win. The merciful mage, by definition, cannot take advantage of his opponent. Do you want to be Mother Teresa or Emma Frost? (laughs) Both mythological icons dress in white. So I just... This event occurred nine years after that. I think it was 2000, 2010, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, I qualified for maybe the last Nationals there ever was in 2010. Does that sound right? Yeah. So playing against Chris. Well, Mack. not anymore. Well, yeah, they're bringing it back. But um, we're playing a New York regional tournament to feed that Nationals. And I'm undefeated at this point playing against Chris Massioli. And I'm playing a Grixis deck. And my bad, horrible, my deck is insane against any other kind of control deck. I'm like, I don't know, some kind of X and O. Uh, but I have no draws, right? And I'm playing against Chris Massioli, and he's playing Mono Red Beatdown, and his deck is awesome again, right? So I can sit down and go, you know, we're, we're friendly. I say, draw. And he's just like, draw? We're like four rounds out of the top eight. I'm fine with you. I'm like, all right, I'll destroy you then. Right? So then he, so I have like a reasonable draw, but he has mm-hmm. like a pretty good draw. So I just like completely overplay it, let him mana screwed or whatever, and I let him stomp, right? It's like I don't want to give him any any inkling that I could have played Magic. Like just let him kill me, right? I know that this is a horrible matchup for me, all right? So, so I'm like, all right. So I side in. So I, I was like the first player ever to play Vampire Nighthawk in in a tournament deck. Like mm-hmm. people thought it was a good limited card, but, uh, but I so I played it in this Grixis deck. So I'm just like, all right. My worst case scenario 
I just which is just my expected value. My expected value is to lose. Okay, but that's also my worst case scenario. It doesn't matter how badly you lose, right? So I just like what I need to do is I need to draw my cards in this sequence. Like draw lightning bolt. Like draw like another like fast removal card or like two mana counter spell. Land vampire nighthawk. Protect it like for two turns and I can't lose. Right. So game two. Like he has goblin guide. I draw a card and lightning bolt. Like he has like something. I terminate it. And I'm like, Nighthawk, he's off a turn. I hit him twice with Nighthawk, and I'm like, Jace the Mind Sculptor, Fate Seal you, to annihilate him, right? Like, I went on, like, 30 life. Because he just has, like, a regular draw, and I drew perfect. Like, I drew absolutely perfect. And I, like, total overplay it. Like, I'm jamming my Nighthawk into the middle of the table, like, mm-hmm. pushing him back. So remember, in the first game, I just, I didn't even play my lands. I was just like, oh, man. And I was just like, <laughs> and I just start laughing, and I'm like... I'm like, <laughs> how does it feel if I don't, like, stop on two lands, Chris? You know, like, yeah. one of those, right? He's like, shoot, you still want to draw? And I, <laughs> and I was like, I'll draw, I guess, you know? Yeah. And I, I'm like, all right, play for fun. He destroyed me, right? He's like, I can't believe I just drew, right? So the the rest of the Swiss, I was up against Jeskai control decks that I 2 owed. <laughs> it's like, um, but that's, that would be an example. Like, you just, you got to... Jedi mind trick? A I don't bit. know if, I mean, is it a Jedi? Like... I think Maybe. I just played right, right? So when, when Mike Turian says... You played the situation right. When Mike Turian says he never played a perfect game of Magic, if I just played game one the way that my cards were supposed to play, he would have beaten me and known that his deck was good against yeah, me. Yeah, he might have had the you know the inclination to, to not draw because even though he lost game two, maybe he could have thought, well, you got a, a really great draw against me. Game three, I'm going to crush you. Yeah, but like... I only showed him cards that were insane against his deck. That's the thing. I just, you know, people talk about decks that, like, you have to draw the right half of your deck. Like, I only drew, like, Lightning Bolt, Mana Leak, and and uh, Va- Vampire Nighthawk. Or, like, probably drew, like, multiple Nighthawks or something. Um, and I, there was, like, another Vampire that gained life. Maybe I drew that and killed him with it. You know, mm-hmm. it was, like, a 4-4, so it's pretty hard to kill for his deck. Uh, so, like... If you only draw the cards that are good against him or whatever, you know, he's going to feel like, oh, man, all the cards are good against me. But, like, in game one, I just didn't show him any cards. Like, I just, like, played like I could, like, oh, man, I'm just so totally jammed up on lands. This is BS, you know, like one of those. So so he feels like if you have any kind of a reasonable draw, you're going to win. That's similar to what I did in the, in the Suicide King PTQ. Uh, I couldn't beat Wall of Blossoms. Theron Martin, who was a pretty notable writer at the time, and we actually roomed at Pro Tour together at one point. Um, like, I could just never beat his. Like, I have Flesh Reaver, he has Wall of Blossoms. I could literally attack. He, he's like, block my guy. I take four, and he draws a card. Like, that is not a good... <laughs> it's not a good scenario, right? Mm-hmm. Like, Wall of Blossoms is so good against, like... Every card in your deck. Every card in my deck, right? And he's playing a certain Vival of the Fittest deck. Typically has four Wall of Blossoms in it, right? So I was just like draw with me and I convinced him that drawing with me is the right thing to do and we both made top 8 even though it was like 2 rounds to go anyway the other force driving my belief was Jamie Wakefield Jamie had won a PTQ the week before with Secret Force no way was I letting him get away with that two words step up Pro Tour qualifiers are by definition populated by amateurs some have pro experience Some are great players who haven't gotten a shot yet or fell on hard times, but for the most part, amateurs. Everyone in the tournament is by that definition on an even playing field. You want to differentiate yourself? Start between your own ears. Even in the top eight, and I've been this fish more than once, you will have players who are not ready to experience success. 
putting yourself in the right frame of mind, deciding precisely what you want and need to do will go a long way in helping you claim the envelope. I was actually qualified for every PT the following year, so I didn't get to play in a lot of PTQs until the summer of 2000 when I made my top eight about every week. Felt medium good about myself while falling short. Let me tell you, there is nothing worse than that, making top eight or even top four or top two as I did and not winning. Some players spread their top eight pins on their playmats or use top eight pins for tokens or counters in an attempt to intimidate their PTQ opponents. Don't let them intimidate you. Do you know what someone with a stack of top eight pins sitting in a PTQ chair is? If he's sitting across the table from you, I can tell you what he's not, a professional magic player. Respect your opponent's abilities to execute on what they can really do in the real world. But don't start off scared. Even John Finkel gets mana flooded, and you can beat him when that happens. And other games, sometimes, too. I didn't get my next constructed win until December the 9th, 2001. I played The Rock. Playing The Rock, I mostly just got lucky to win the 10-round PTQ at Grand Prix Las Vegas, where Mike Pastilnik, whom I had beaten with The Rock to get my three buys, won at the same time I did. This is actually a great story. So I was a, I played, do you know what The Rock is? Yeah, it's a green-black. Yeah, so I was teammates with a guy named Saul Malka who had invented The Rock, and nobody took it seriously, this, this archetype. So I played it in a... In a Grand Prix trial in New York, I beat Mike Pastelnik is a has won a Pro Tour, a Grand Prix, and a Master Series. It's like one of the only players. There. I think Bob Mars the only player to do it. So I beat Mike Pastelnik to uh, win the the three buys. There was three buys back then. He's like, "Wow, this is a great deck. Can I copy your deck?" Right. So I'm like, it's all Malka's deck, right? But sure, whatever. So we played the same deck at the Grand Prix. He won the Grand Prix. I went X and 2 on day one, which wasn't good enough for the cutoff. And then I and I won the PTQ. So we literally won. We were playing same yeah, 75. The whole weekend. The whole weekend, there were two tournaments. He won He won the Grand Prix, and I won the PTQ at the same time. It was uh, pretty cool. Nice. Um, I played against Mons Johnson. Mons Goblin Raiders is named after Mons Johnson. He was an original member of... of uh, of R&D. I played against Mons Johnson with the Proto Gob Vantage deck. He demolished me. Mons should have won that PTQ, but he got mana screwed in the top four. I was 14-0 and 0 in games against Donate going into the finals. Ben Rubin and Brian Kibler convinced me to buy out Michael Burnett instead of playing for the slot. But come on, I was 14-0. and 0. I had been going out with my then-girlfriend for four months at this point. We got married two months later, so I actually ended up skipping the PT. Honestly, this is a study in PTQ win that you can't copy. I was on a three-tournament high with The Rock, but no longer underrepresented. I think it was already on its last legs by Sunday evening in Las Vegas. I didn't play that well, but my opponents made up for it left and right. I had an opponent playing black, blue, white, what we would call it Esper. Mm-hmm. Esper Wizards who attacked his Shadow Mage Infiltrator into my Phyrexian Plague Lord. Yes, it's black. I played Vampiric Tutor against Dumbo Drop, and it resolved. He was shocked that I demolished his joke of a mana base with Dust Bowl. Can't counter that. So, do you know what Vampiric Tutor is? Yeah. So, typically, you would cast a tutor, and then people wouldn't counter it. They would counter whatever you got with it, right? Mm-hmm. So, he's a counterspell, obviously, and so I cast Vampiric Tutor. And he's like, all right, I'm just going to count. Like, whatever. I'm probably thinks I'm eating, like, a 5-5 or counter that, right? 
Instead, I got Dust Bowl. And my deck is like a green deck with like all land advantage. So I just destroyed all of it. You know what Dust Bowl is? It's a it's a colorless land that you can uh -huh. tap four and sacrifice a land to destroy a land. So like, oh, so you just yeah, like destroyed his mana like base. a two to one mana base advantage against him. I just literally killed all of his blue lands and then just resolved all my spells. Wow. So, so. Um, but that's like a great play, right? Like people don't they don't he obviously wasn't anticipating that that was the case, or he would have countered the vampiric. Yeah, card, right? probably would have beaten me. Classic Malka. I overcommitted my spirit mongers in the Malka mirror in the top four, but got lucky again in three. And then Vermont was willing to part with the invitation. The rock was ironclad that weekend. My three tournament record with it was 17, three, and three. A delta of about 150 DCI points and two tournament wins. Yet, the one that I didn't win was the Grand Prix. Yet, I don't believe it was ever the best deck again. Maybe it was about moment. The right place at the right time. Maybe this is an example of having the right deck right before the Miracle Grow metagame shift and of picking the slot that nobody else wanted. Maybe there is something to be taken away. I got a PT invite a year for the next couple of years, but they were all limited. My next 60 card win was not for another four years when I won with Critical Mass. This one, as you know, was pure deck advantage. I had a deck that could do no wrong. I finished 8-1-1 one, and one, and the loss was a punt when I had Malogu in play. That said, it was also about flexibility. I had tested to the max, but was still open enough to accept a little good advice. Steve and I made the last-minute change of adding two copies of Consuming Vortex. I was dead on board to Tim Gillum's Urami token when I plucked the Vortex. Game, set, and blue envelope. So uh, Consuming Vortex is basically Unsummon, but it was Arcane, and it cost two. But I didn't have any copies in it. We had like four copies of Gnarled Mass in our sideboard. Mm -hmm. So instead I had two copies of Gnarled Mass and two copies of Consuming Vortex. And I'm like, uh, Urami is like, um, it's basically like a profane prince. It was a land that you sacrificed to make like a demon. Mm -hmm. It's like a 5-5 five, five flyer or whatever. And I'm dead. And I just like ripped this card. It was like, the I got two copies of my 75. It was the only card I would, I, th I probably could have, maybe I could have drawn Maloku. But that or like a giant flyer, right? But it was sweet. But the point is, stay flexible, end of the tournament, or beginning of the tournament, right? Like, even if you think you're the nuts, maybe you can be better. Yeah. And so, deck advantage has consistently been the most important element in my ability to win constructed PTQs. You can translate this to any tournaments. Champs, certainly. Regionals, etc. I have the firm belief that the most important decision that you make occurs before the tournament starts. You don't have to be the most practiced, but you have to have the best tools. Almost always, the best deck is not what the rest of the world thinks is the best deck. I never won with the deck to beat. The deck to beat wins a surprisingly small percentage of tournaments and is almost always outperformed on ratio by lesser archetypes on a week-to-week -week basis. This has been true since Black Summer of 1996 with only one blip, Care of Vile Affinity. It's actually also true of Cobblade, but Cobblade had did, was 10 years after this article came out. Three years after this article? I won with Necropotence with white permanent suppression when, uh, when red-white gargoyle was the deck to beat. Mono-black in what was meant to be the sea of blue combo. The rock in a tricks field. Critical mass in a format where, according to Teddy Card Game, Gifts was more successful than Ravager had been the previous year. And a heartbeat bore Selesnia previously beach house configuration in a format that was then largely gruel and orzov where wrath of god was considered the overall best card relatively weak against our configuration what happened the next weeks 
1996, it's hard to say the internet was not what it is. In any case, Lauer's deck was probably better than mine. Mine was 63 cards <laughs> with, necro- with three necropotes. Three strategic necropotes. His had four skulls, three demonic consultation, but was down three card advantages in a mere 60. Snap! In 1999, I won the last week, so there was no ripple in the metagame. In 2001, an interesting thing happened. A new Predator deck emerged in Miracle Grow. A deck that was not just good against the decks The Rock was good against, but that crushed The Rock. The Rock was never the right deck to play again, as far as I can remember. And it was a horrific choice in the latter part of 2001 extended season. Critical Mass made top eight in the last Grand Prix of the format a week after my win. In 2006 teams, Heartbeat Vor configurations quickly rose to the top, and my green-white deck, borrowing from both Gazi Glare and Ghost Dad, brought home a handful of invites around the country. I'm not sure if this is a chicken and egg issue, but I never won with the deck to beat. But in at least a couple of cases, the definition of the deck to beat changed, at least somewhat. There is an old Israeli saying that if you and a friend are in the forest being chased by a bear, you don't have to be faster than the bear. You just have to be faster than your friend. (laughs) When I won in 1996, I wasn't faster than Lauer, but I didn't have to be. It was a two-slaughter. A lot of my publishing attitude comes out of this philosophy. I don't know if I publish the absolute best deck every time. Everyone falls short consistently. But I like to think that whatever I produce in this column on the podcasts, what have you, is better and more useful in general than what my readers probably have without them. The second most important element in my PTQ wins has been a sturdy mental game. The win with Suicide King in 1999 was entirely merciless gamesmanship. Not play skill, not deck advantage. The non-win in teams is a good counterexample. I let Andy Probosco beat me. I was up a game and got overconfident. Remember from last week that winning, when you haven't actually won yet, is the worst thing in the world next to Mercy. Arrogantly blind to the point, I couldn't see how he could win. In the deciding game, I actually played out of his optimal early game, but crumbled a little when, we, when he hit his one-outer, the game being far from over. I didn't take direction from Satan, who knew he was going to end up being a better constructed player than I was. I had seen him play, and a little collaboration would probably have won the tournament. Bob Maher is the absolute best model for magic manhood from this perspective. Bob always assumes the worst, that he's going to get top-decked whatever. He always plays tense, sharpest, and ultimately his best because he never stops looking for outs, even if a third-party observer would think that he's winning. No mercy. That's why Bob can win a PT with two lands in play, down 20 cards. My team was lucky that the optimal configurations didn't disseminate quickly enough, and we had a free pass the next week, playing against more Gifts and Orzhov decks rather than Heartbeat and Vor, arguably the two best teams' decks. That's another <clears throat> really great point there. Um, always looking for ways to get ahead, even when you are ahead. Because things can all, you know, always go wrong, and you can, can kind of be stuck in a mindset where I'm going to win this game, and then it can just be taken so, right from under I, you. I hadn't read this article in a long time. I forgot about how I lost that. So we were in the finals. We were undefeated in the Swiss uh-huh. in the finals, playing for playing for slot. And um, Paul Jordan won, and Steve had lost, right? So it's up to me. I'm playing against Andy Probosco, who's a uh, 
was a really big Eternal columnist at the time. He's like a really popular Star City game writer of, of, in the Eternal communities, right? Like vintage or I guess probably vintage. Really. And so I'm up a game. And in game two, I'm so far ahead. So I was playing uh, what you would call Abzan, but like Abzan Control and playing Gifts. And I'm like, I'm so far ahead. I'm like, I, I, I remember he like uses top and he's like looking at the top's library and I'm like, what is he thinking about? It's like, I'm trying to lace together what I have to to draw in sequence to not lose in the next two turns. Basically, what I was like, there's nothing, and he did it, got out of it, and then beat me. Right, so it's like, oh, man, that's the worst. And then game three, I have him dead on board, and he has like a one outer, and he ripped the one outer, and then my mental game just went away. I probably could have played out of it. Mm-hmm. So anyway little lesson roman fusco style just because you kill yourself on your own eidolons <laughs> doesn't mean you don't deserve to win the match a subtle fact is that all my wins have been at the beginning or the end of a season i have two last week of the season wins with everything else in the first three weeks this is important for especially long season you can exploit a metagame with a critical mass or suicide king but it's generally easiest to have something pretty good in a room full of mostly awful the rogue decks that win at the end of a season have to be some of the best ever. But the rogue decks at the beginning of a season can be wildly suboptimal. Long view. If they're just a little bit better than whatever is already. If you look look at look at Star City tournaments is like a better example for recently. Like think about how bad the decks are this season. <laughs> right? If your deck is like a little bit better than whatever garbage people are playing, you're gonna have an but by the end of the season, your deck has to be insane to be better than... than. Yeah, I really think outside the box. I mean, like, I think your green-white Marvel deck you played at the end of last season would be a great example of that, right? Yeah. By far the best deck you could play. And it had never been played in a tournament before, right? It was you know, not as great against the blue-white strategies, but I think it was, like, the best Marvel deck out there. I think it was the best deck you could choose to play. Sure. Which is, I think... Because it had point. a great matchup against Marty Vehicles and Marvel... Was, and, well, it's also winnable against blue white, right? Yeah, it was winnable. Yeah, I did. I did. You also lost to blue white. Yeah, it mattered, but you've beaten everybody else, right? Yeah. Including an, an open, no, oh, invitational champion. A subtle fact. Oh, I'm sorry, I read it. Note that I didn't go over the dozen or so near misses over. This. For every win, there was a loss in the finals, a top eight mana flood, some poorly tapped serrated arrows, a bad beat story. I used to make a lot of excuses but I probably didn't have a great mental game back then. For example, I didn't think about things like Parallax Wave Man, whether I should hold back in fear of a trick back then. What a play represents is often much more important than the play itself. Here's a piece of fairly important philosophy that, if you adopt, will probably make you a better person as well as player. I try to never lose to Mana Screw. Maybe not never never, but close enough to never, that I'm willing to claim never, I mean. I try not to lose to mana screw in the sense that even when I am short lands, I make an effort to figure out what needs to happen for me to stay competitive in a game or win instead of just giving. I try to create a plan, and if I fail to execute on it, hey, we all fall short. Usually when I lose to what I might shorthand as mana screw, it is because I kept a speculative hand that didn't materialize. Like at Champs, when I lost to Tankus, 
I was unwilling to mulligan a hand with three two-drops, despite having only two lands and a hand that required white-white, green one, and red two. The majority of the time, that hand ends up playable. I was lazy, maybe I'd given up, and I didn't really think about what it meant to keep it. I lost discarding. Usually players are unwilling to mulligan bad hands because they are afraid of giving up the card. Note that when I was discarding, I was also giving up the card, and more, with almost no chance to win. Speculative hands with no clear path for the first few turns are usually bad keeps, unless you are in a bad matchup, where you have to get lucky anyway. I was in a good one. Remember, when you lose purely to Mana Screw, you are positioning yourself in a universe of chance, where you got the short stick, instead of a universe of choices, where you can make the right one. That said, I think the majority of PTQ players lose to Mana Screw about every round if they lose. I would say that something like 70 to 80% of matches are decided on one player or another having either a little too little or a little too much mana and not knowing what to do while the other guy autopilots them. Yeah, it sucks to have too much land or too little. Live with it. Unless you are in an elimination round or carrying a loss in the Swiss, you might just have to eat the loss. But don't give up unless you have a good reason. I know that I have lost a surprising number of games where my good-slash-better opponent stumbled, but my play was somehow not appropriate. Those losses would never have happened if my level-headed opponents hadn't had plans, tried to figure out how to win, maybe even trapped me, the unsuspecting probable winner with a keen swindle too. Maybe you are less likely to win Mana Screwed, but it's not impossible. When I won with Suicide King, I was carrying a loss in a Game 3 situation in the middle of the day, not even the end of the Swiss, where my opponent had two copies of Life Force, a Verdant Force, and Natural Order on the stack, sacrificing an Uktabi Orangutan that had taken my Cursed Scroll, the only permanent I had in play but one Wasteland. And even carrying a previous loss in this Game 3 situation, I came back to win. You know what? I'm not even that good. For now, juggle these here five fish. Number one. Play the best possible deck to win the tournament you have to win. Ignore the jeers. The best deck is probably not the deck to beat. Number two, you will fall short and often. The trick mentally is never be satisfied falling short. I fell into a trap for some years, actually happy to make top eight. That is no way to qualify for the Pro Tour. Mm -hmm. Set your goal past the tournament so that when you fall short in first place, hey, at least you won a tournament constantly strive to better yourself. Number three, wrap yourself in an iron belief in your destiny to win the tournament. Eschew any and all mercy. You're here for a reason. He's there for a reason. Your reason is probably not, quote, letting a stranger steal your PTQ with a take back after he punted the match, end quote. I've been on both sides of this. Getting the take back makes you a worse player and person. I don't know where people got this idea that Dave Price is a nice guy. Who do you think taught me? I don't go to PTQs to make friends. That's what Dave said. Mm -hmm. Part of this is to resist intimidation. When you are intimidated, it probably means that your belief in your divine right of kings and the qualified is not so ironclad. Every force in the universe is trying to take your slot away. Don't give up what you've got so cheaply. It doesn't matter if your insides are made of spun sugar and porcelain. 
You can cry about your pathetic life when you get home. After you've claimed your blue envelope. At the tables, never let them see you flinch. Number four, be prepared to get lucky. If Kai can win a PT this way, you can win a damn PTQ. Five, stay flexible. There are no permanent alliances to colors, to deck preference, to single card choices. Black might be purple. Orange or even Botswana next week. Change or die. Just one man's opinion and experience. Talk amongst yourselves. Love, Mike. All right. So that's the... Oh, there's a PS. Do you want to read the PS? All right. You want to read the PS? You can read the PS. I'll read the PS. PS. Personally, I like a good fight. In fact, I can really appreciate and even like being outplayed. I'd much rather be swindled by a crafty master than lose because I was mana screwed or I misclicked. When I sit down with one of my friends, and most of my good friends I'm at bashing or being bashed by in magic tournaments, it's understood that we both want the other guy to be mana screwed, and neither one of us expects a thimble full of quarter. To this day, Koal will never let me forget the bird lightning that cost me a GP Top 16 PT pass down slot, and last week Zv even made fun of me on the podcast for falling for one of his bluffs during a world's playtest test. To me, the most important elements of magic occur between the ears. Turnabout is fair play, and dirty tricks get a golf clap. I'd just like to share one last story. I actually backstabbed Paul Jordan for a PTQ, playing instead with John Schuler and Brian Kowal, even though I promised Paul I would play with him. Then we won. <laughs> so I told Paul I'd play with him and Josh Rabbits, oh. and I played with these other two guys, and we won the PTQ, so... <laughs> <laughs> that, that's that, this is now my team. <laughs> Sorry, chaps. Right, so oops. Paul ended up qualifying with Matt Urban and Josh Rabbits. None of us knew back then, but they would end up being some kind of upgrade. So, of course, first round of day two, the apprentices were up against the old man. Paul and Josh had all the angles figured out. I can't believe I didn't see this coming. Mike, call it for all of us. For all of us, Paul slammed his hand down on a quarter, covering it. Give me head. I always said give me head. <laughs> Back then. Why, oh, why? Wasn't it tails never fails? How did I not see this coming? Paul and Josh had, of course, set up the quarter. There went about 20% value times three. The good guys lost in a squeaker. What can you say? Well done. So they got you there? Yeah, they set up the quarter <laughs> to be heads because they knew I always had give me head. And we had drafted. Ins- my deck was insane. But I gave up 20% across three... So like winning the flip is insane, right? <laughs> I gave up three flips, right? Uh-huh. I literally gave up the flip for my entire team. Ugh. So, like, that's it's not insurmountable. Like, we lost 2-1, but... Yeah, uh, but you still gave it up. Yeah, I gave it up. I lost. <laughs> and my, like, Josh was playing, I think, like, black red, and I was playing, like, red-white. Mm-hmm. My matchup was insane. And, but he was on the play. He got me. So, so. how to win a pizza queue. Still relevant in 10 years later in 2017? I definitely think so. So maybe I'll talk about regionals for a little bit here. Yeah. Um, after reading the article. Um, so I think this article is still very relevant to today. Um, it's something that if you're interested in playing competitive magic and tournament magic and you're, you want to qualify for the pro tour and play at you know a high level, it's a mindset you really have to have is when you're you're not qualified for the pro tour, you really should go into an event thinking, I'm going to win this event. I'm going to get the qualification. You know, I'm, I'm going to win. Um, if you 
Put like your... you were texting me all during regionals, right? Yeah. And you're just like, beat him again, two zero, two one, got him again. You know, like exactly. Um, the, it was funny. The night before, I was staying with my friend Camille, who thankfully drove me to the event. Um, funny enough, I actually wanted to play a PPTQ, a sealed, <laughs> a sealed one on Saturday, um, but I, there was online registration open for it. I was like, eh, I'll do it later, and the event gets sold out. So then I'm like, ugh, you didn't I'm going to have to you didn't play to your go apps. all the way to Catskill to play regionals, right? I'm like, I'm so unlucky. And then... You're so unlucky. And then I was like, ah. Your tournament win was quite enough. I think this is Destiny's way of telling me I'm going to win regionals. I kind of I jokingly said that. But the night before the event, I was sitting with my friend Camille, who, who drove me. And I said, tomorrow I'm going to win the event. And he kind of laughed it off and said, I'm, I'm going to win the event tomorrow. You had a good deck. I mean, for, yeah. It was a great deck. Yeah, so I think it's I mean, still a great deck. I think, it's, I think Burn is fantastic. I think it's... Just talking about where it's very consistent, very powerful, puts a lot of pressure on, um, and it's the deck I like to play. I was also very sick during the tournament, so I would. You never played a mirror match, right? No, I wish I did. It's like it's crazy. It's because mirror match is our best matchup. Yeah, because we play inspiring. Yeah, well, I think they play most most burn decks are are starting to play inspiring advantage now. Well, I mean, once you start playing inspiring advantage, you quickly realize how bad. Like stomping around, yeah. or whatever it is, and you're like, oh, um, or like, okay, I know people are playing Wild in the Cattle this weekend. Why? So that bad. Pains me. It, it, you know, it's even worse because first of all, it's always bad, but now you're just literally giving somebody a target of Akari Zev's expertise or Fatal Push or whatever. Either one. I mean, both. It's bad in both cases, but it's but really bad. You're also starting Zev. off games at. You know, fifteen, fourteen life because you have to play stomping grounds and sacred foundry. Yeah, right. It's yeah, so bad. It's insane. I kind of can't even talk about how bad it is. Like, <sighs> okay. I just want to play against them every round. Like we did have, we there. did have like a great deck for the event. Um, but even though I was sick, even though I did, I physically felt very ill. I was, I was gung ho that I was going to win the event. I did, and you did. Good job. Thank you. Um, but you do. Like you say in the article, you do fall short. Um, but I think having that mindset will help you win more often and will put you in positions to win. Wherein, if you think that, oh, I'm not going like, to, I'm, I'm here to top eight, hopefully, and whatever, I'm just going to play magic. But you're putting down, like you said, $30, $40 on the line. You should be there to win the event. And your time. You don't get your time back. Exactly. You can earn another $40, right? You can play. You can have fun doing anything else. But. You're playing at like the competitive level. You're playing for the qualification. And I think it's really important to have that unshakable mindset, right? I mean, I think it's it mattered to me, you know. Yeah. And so, I mean, you know, even our interactions, right? We play in like PPTQs or local tournaments together. You know, yeah. Like, why do you act like this? Because I'm going to win the tournament, right? <laughs> yeah. You always refer to yourself as F and M champ. I'm like, who cares? It's F and M. Then I win. <laughs> I think for me, it's been less about. I've actually started going less to F and M and weekly tournaments, mostly because of my school schedule. But um, I never. I guess maybe I should adapt the mindset that I'm going to win the F and M. But I, I don't really think it's that important. But when I go to the events, I, I want the qualification. I want you know the win, even if it's like a, a grand prix or something. Now I have to really start before the tournament starts. 
get into the mindset. I'd love it if you want a Grand Prix. This podcast has become very popular if you want a Grand Prix. Uh, uh, Go win a Grand Prix. How long until Grand Prix New Jersey? Month, right? I'll win that one. Good luck with that. All right. I'm playing in that one. I don't care. Oh, see, there you when go. We're, when we're playing across from the table, I'm going to do a, I'm gonna put a coin down. Yeah. Like cover my hand. And I'll say Tails Never Fails, and you're going to be boned. Because it's going to be heads. <laughs> you, like, next level me? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to next level you at, uh, roll G- at the GP. Um, is there anything else you want to add about the article? I think it's it's still... It's it's a good, not only magic um, mindset, but it's a good life lesson also. I think so. I, I, I use the term winning a PTQ in it repeatedly, but yeah. I, I think of that article as just like any anything that you want to master. No, I, th- I think it's, it is it is great uh, life advice to have. Cool. So um, hopefully people will like this and we'll be back next yeah, week. Yeah, this was fun. Um Hopefully we'll be back with another episode or two to test it out. Um, next week we'll do Who's the Beatdown by Reed Duke. By Reed Duke, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the great Reed Duke. <laughs> All right. All right. Um, so this has been Ancestral Recall. I'm Roman Fusco. I'm Michael J. All right. See you around. Bye-bye. Right. <laughs>